Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for this great blood of Jesus that gives us standing before you. That when it was poured out, your response was to tear the veil separating the people from the Holy of Holies, to tear it from top to bottom. That through that blood of Jesus that was poured out, God, we can come to You and we can cry, Abba, Father. That through that blood of Jesus, the work of Satan can be undone. And that Satan would flee. And that we, a a group of people from a lot of different walks of life that we can come together who, who might not have much in common and we can be fully unified because of the blood of Jesus. And that our sins would be washed white, God. The stuff we did yesterday, the thoughts we've had in our minds this morning, the greed, the anger, the pride, God, that that can be untangled and removed from us by by the blood of Your Son. Oh God, how we need that. And we join with David in Psalm 51 in, in asking You to give us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. God, we didn't come here this morning for donuts to see people, to sing songs together, and certainly not to hear from some guy. But God, we came here because we need You. And so Father, as we open Your Word, would You give us what we need? Would You give us You? Let us see You. Let us be shaped by You. Would Your Holy Spirit burn in our hearts? Your words. The conviction we need. The affirmation and the comfort we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Dave, if you could please keep it down in the front row, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Some people. (laughs) June 6, 1944 is more than just a significant day in the European theater of World War II. It was a profoundly significant day, a turning point. It was the day of the Allied invasion in Normandy, France. The mission was to take five different beachheads that were tied together. It didn't quite go as planned. Some winds drove some of the landing craft off course. But within six days, all five were taken control of through the hard work and bravery of over 24,000 fighting men. It must have been a daunting sight for those young men in the landing crafts to look up and just see gun mounts and hear the bullets whizzing by and to see the the beach that they knew was covered in mines, but they 
didn't know where all of them were. And it also must have been a, a daunting view from the beach to look out and see nothing but landing craft and ships and know that all of that is coming at you and there's only so many bullets sitting next to you. And there's a lot more of that than there is of this. One of the reasons D-Day as a mission worked was because the soldiers just kept coming. They never stopped coming. No individual soldier could have or would have stormed that beach alone. It would have been complete foolishness. But no individual soldier was there alone. Instead, they were bound to, they were surrounded by, and they were part of a large military force. Each individual was part of this larger force. They were surrounded by the larger force. They were bound to it. While many individuals died that day, over 4,000, the battle was not won by individuals, but by the collective force, by the bravery and the determination of the group. Hebrews 12.1, if you're not there yet, please turn to there, starts out with this word, therefore. And for us, as we study Scripture, what's the question we ask? What is the therefore? Therefore. How does this word function? What is the transitionary mode of this word? Is it just wrapping up what's before? Is it only telling us about what's coming up? In this case, it's doing both. It is a bridge. Not only from Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12, but Hebrews 1 through 11 to Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 1 through 11 has started out and has said, here's how great Christ is. Here's people who have put their faith in God and, in, and their faith in Christ consequently from the Old Testament. And therefore, therefore, sur- since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, since we are not an individual soldier on the beaches of Normandy, Therefore, since you are not alone in your faith, therefore, since you are surrounded by the likes of Abraham and Moses and Enoch and Abel and the people who walked out into the dry land surrounded by the Red Sea on both sides, therefore, since you are surrounded by all these people who are a very uncommon fellowship of faith, like what Pastor Dave told us last week, since you are surrounded by these people, and not just they're around you watching as though they're in the arena and you're on the field, but since you are in fellowship with these people, since you are in fellowship with men like Melchizedek who point to Christ, since you are surrounded by the greatest high priest who offered the greatest sacrifice, who is Jesus himself. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses who has put their faith in this man, since we are bound to them, since we are in fellowship with them. Therefore, since you are, another way to put it for today's context, is since you are part of the body of Christ. As a follower of Jesus, you are not alone. Do you realize that? 
Because sometimes I feel like we feel so alone. We watch the news, we go to work, we live in our neighborhoods. And sometimes we can feel isolated as a follower of Jesus. Like we're the only one doing this. Is Jesus more powerful than fill in the blank? And we feel like we're out on an island. And Hebrews 12.1 is starting out to say, Therefore, you're you're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. You're not alone as you follow Jesus. And then he goes in to say, because we're in it together, because you're in it with this group of witnesses from Hebrews 11 that's continued through today and will continue on past us. Let's live changed. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, a lot of ways, and, and going on from here through 12 and 13, is the so what to the rest of Hebrews. I have a friend at a church in the metro area, and he's, he's preaching through Hebrews, cover to cover of the book of Hebrews. He's like, man, it's such a rich book. And how do you apply Jesus is better than the angels to our lives? How do you apply Jesus is better than Melchizedek to Tuesday of that week? It's really hard. Because the application really starts here in 12. Where he says, because of all this stuff, our lives should be different. Because of who Jesus is. Because of the example of faith. And we're surrounded by these people. Our lives should be different. When we follow Jesus, we become part of the body of Christ. We enter this cloud of witnesses, not only surrounded by them, and that surrounding is not an intimidating thing, but a fellowship thing, where we draw encouragement from their lives. And as we follow Jesus, it changes us. So as we follow Jesus, what we see here continuing on in Hebrews 12 is that we cut loose. As we follow Jesus, we cut loose. So let me start again at 12.1. I'll read up to where we're going. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay it aside. Let us, let us cut it out. And you have to read ahead the next phrase to understand the context of what's going aside. The author of Hebrews is, is following closely what Paul does in, in likening the Christian life to that of running a race. This is a familiar analogy to us. Here, though, the author tells us that in order to, to run that race well, we need to cut some stuff off of us. We need to cut loose the extra baggage that we try to carry and that we self-inflict upon ourselves. Get rid of this extra weight. I have a few friends, my wife included, who think it's fun to run long distances. And they think it's so much fun to run long distances that they, they pay money to do it. <laughs> and they run things called marathons. Marathon, got it, the first guy to ever run a marathon died because he did it. And so a section of our population said, that guy died doing it, let's do it. And it blows my mind that people would think... It, that it's enjoyable to run 26.2 miles. It blows my mind that people would think, this is fun, it's something I aspire to. 
And I'm like, that guy died for a reason. Like, <laughs> why? Why would you do this? Um, so my wife ran her first marathon, and then she told me something that really blew my mind. This, I mean, this is beyond blowing my mind to just plain mystifying, that some people pay to run these distances, and then they make it harder for themselves by looking like this. That's someone in a rhinoceros costume running the London Marathon. Somebody said, I'm going to run 26.2 miles, and I'm going to do it looking like this. Because they believe so much in the life of rhinos, not a bad cause. I love rhinoceroses. I I would never run in that. Unless I happened to be wearing it and an actual rhinoceros thought I was a threat to its territory. And then there's these guys. That's an unhealthy love of Indiana Jones. This is, this is called idolatry. And it bothers me on like a human level... That, that these people would say, I'm going to run a marathon looking like this. It's, it's not that it's hard enough. I'm going to draw attention to myself and make it harder at the same time. And then on a pride level, it bothers me because they would pass me. That guy <laughs> would go right by me. Like at mile two, he, this guy, and those two people <laughs> pushing the rock, they would all pass me. And it would really bother me. These people intentionally make the race harder. And the author of Hebrews is saying that when we sin, we add extra weight. As we follow Jesus, we need to cast away the sin so we don't run like people dressed as camels or singing karaoke. Which also happened. It's hard to see it, but that guy in the pink is holding a songbook. And there's a speaker hanging around his waist and he has a microphone up. And people, like, so we look at this and we say, those people, like, there's some screws loose. They, they got bad water where they grew up and they just, things aren't clicking. Um, and so they choose to run this way. But here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that when we try to do the Christian life with sin, go back to that slide. When we try and do the Christian life while not dealing with our sin, this is what we do to ourselves. Only we don't do it to be funny. We do it out of ignorance. We do it out of pride. That we don't cut these things. All right, you can go, you can go on to that blank, Kyle. The imagery here, the author, he, he says that this sin, it clings closely. This weight and sin which clings so closely. The imagery is that sin is well wrapped around us. It's hindering forward movement, or that it's shackled to us. These are things that we bring on, or that's part of us because of our sin nature, that inhibits us from following Jesus well. Inhibits us from doing what God desires. Another way that some people have understood uh, the imagery of Hebrews 12 isn't so much that like someone's carrying a backpack full of rocks while they run, but someone's running and they get distracted and they just go off course. And in doing so, they, just, they either leave the race altogether 
or, or in a track analogy, they leave their lane and get disqualified. To further explore this, I want to do a little exercise with us. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think, what is something that you feel, like as you follow Jesus, this is something Jesus wants you to do? As you follow Jesus, what's, what's something he's wanting you to do? I have a few ideas up here. Maybe to talk to your neighbor about him. Support an additional missionary. Cut back on what you're spending so the gospel can go out more places. Volunteer in your community with Highland Park Community Church, with Agape Pregnancy Centers, the whole variety of other really godly nonprofits we have in our community. Engage the refugee community. We have people coming to Des Moines from the 1040 window that we can now tell about Jesus and love on. Maybe, maybe the Lord is wanting you to change your job, change your vocation, to forgive someone, to build your marriage, to quit ignoring problems that sit there and fester in your marriage, but to actually deal with them. And we, I mean, this list could go on and on and on. To get up earlier in the morning to spend time in the Word and prayer, or to turn off the TV at a certain time of night and do it then. What is it that you feel like Jesus is doing? And maybe, maybe on your notes, just write down something. What is it that you think Jesus maybe wants you to be doing or trying? To grow, to follow Him, to extend His love to others as you've experienced it? And then we have another list. These are sins that are pretty common to us. Greed and selfishness and anger and bitterness Selfishness is so prevalent in my life, apparently I put it on the list twice. Lack of self-control with any of those following things. Jealousy, deceitfulness, lust. Our idolatry of comfort could be added to that. And think for a moment. You had the first list of things that Jesus may be wanting you to do. You have this list of sin. How could any of these interfere with your ability to do the next. It's pretty easy to think of a whole lot of reasons, a whole lot of ways. We're going to deal a little bit with the ways that they interfere in the next, in the next point, but what I, what I want to do real quickly is here just talk about how do we get rid of sin, because he says, the author, let us lay this aside. So how do we lay aside our sin? This could be a whole message or series in and of itself, but I, I just wanted to boil it down. I, at first I wrote this super long list, and I'm like, that's not helpful. Um, so I want to boil this down to just a few things. Uh, first is uh, be in community. Don't pursue Christ alone. Don't be the person that thinks, I'm going to storm Normandy by myself. But realize that you are part of this cloud of witnesses and take advantage of that. Here at Westchester, during the school year, we have our adult Bible fellowships where people meet, and and some of you guys have been in an adult Bible fellowship with the same people for 20 or more years. And there's a value to that. There's a treasure in that. There's a, a great strength to that. And there's other people who are like, you know what, I don't need that. Let me tell you, you, a big part of this is you get into a group and you get to know each other. 
And there are people in my life that know me so well that when I start talking about a difficult situation, they'll say, oh, Chuck, I bet, I bet you acted this way. And they read me like an open book. And I need brothers like that in my life. Because if I go through my Christian walk and I never open up and I'm never known and I never allow myself to become part of a community, I never stop my busyness to engage with other believers, I'm going to stunt my growth because I need men of God who, who are around me who can speak truth into my life and say, Chuck, that's sin and it needs to be dealt with. And we all have this need. And so many times we go through church and how we do church is we show up for a worship service and we go home and we never become known. We never know anyone. That relationship is missing and it stunts our spiritual growth at best. And at worst, it opens us up to to catastrophic sin because we're not walking in... Not just in accountability. Accountability is a piece of it. We're not walking in relationship and care. Because I can, I can meet with someone and have a list of ten accountability questions and run through those. But if there's no care along with that accountability, then, then it's just going to be looking for the right answers instead of really getting down to the heart and willing to sit through tough conversations late into the evening. Or willing when tragedy comes. I've known people who have had a major death in their life where, where someone really close to them died and they either got closer to God or they walked away and, the, and one of the differences is who was around them caring for them and helping them in that. So be known and have accountability as part of that. And, and with that very much comes truth. Are people going to speak truth into your life? Are you willing to hear and receive truth? When you're told you need to repent of something, are you willing to drop to your knees? Are you willing to dig deep and say, yeah, I do. Let's figure out what it is I need to repent of and let's work on that. And with that, obviously, comes repent and receive. Repent of your sin. Receive God's forgiveness. Don't keep, don't repent of your sin and then keep holding it up in front of yourself as though it's still there and undealt with. Well, let the blood of Jesus wash that away and take what was scarlet and make it white as snow. Once we've untangled from sin, and especially even while we're in the process of doing so, as we follow Jesus, we don't just need to cut loose, but we need to run hard. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yeah, think in your mind, like what, what are the analogies that come to you as you would seek to describe the Christian life in 21st century America? How do we describe that? What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, Paul talked about the, the fighter, the athlete, the runner. He talked about the farmer. He talked about the soldier. Here the, the analogy is a runner running with endurance, the race set before him. I think of endurance races instead of just a sprint, something that lasts a long time like a marathon. 
And how heartbreaking is it when you're watching an athletic competition like the Olympics and there's someone in a long race and they're either unable or unwilling to finish it. They get to a point and they just stop. Either they mentally shut down or they physically shut down and they just stop. I imagine by now that most of you've most likely heard of Sarah Cooper, the most famous resident of Urbandale at the moment. Uh, Sarah, this year, won the solo women's division for the Ram bike race, a ride across America. It started in California, ended in Maryland. She pedaled 3,070.28 miles from coast to coast. She did this in 11 days, 18 hours, and 56 minutes. Sarah would only sleep for about 20 minutes at a time, totaling about two to three hours a day. Somewhere in Colorado, she says she went to survival mode. At one point, one of her 20-minute sleeps came while she was waiting out a tornado warning. What if she gave up? How sad would it be if she got to, let's say, Virginia? They said, you know, I think I've pedaled hard enough. I've proved myself, and she just quit. Or lost because she was wearing ankle weights or a backpack full of bricks. Or what if she got somewhere into the eastern time zone and decided the Atlantic wasn't for her, so she'd go down to the Gulf of Mexico instead? She rode all the miles, she did all the work, maybe even more miles. And just went to the wrong place intentionally. Instead, this is what she said after the race. She said, there was never any question that I'd hang it up, hang it up or give up. I'd just do what I had to do to get to the finish line. Too many times Christians and Christian leaders stop running hard. And they do it for a variety of reasons. All too often it's because they didn't really care to take care of their sin. So they tried doing a bike ride across America with a backpack with 70 pounds of bricks in it. Never repenting. Never letting Jesus be the one to pull those out and to take it. Because they said, no, I need to do it myself. Or I don't want anyone to know I have this backpack. And so I'm just going to hide in my shame instead of seeking out that greater cloud of witnesses. What's your attitude on the Christian life and knowing that there's this great race ahead of you? What, where's your heart at in that? Do you know you're in a race? And this race could be a variety of things. I think obviously there's a great commission element to it that we are making disciples, that there's still 3,100 people, groups, and languages that don't have the Bible in their language. That they could walk all over the world and never find a Bible in their language. And never find someone who can tell them in their language that Jesus died for their sins. 3,100 people groups. So that's a race we're on. We're sending people. Some of us are going. We're praying for them. We're giving of our finances so the gospel can get to their language. 
Others of us, this race of endurance is just simply, there's this other part where we're just trying to obey God in our daily lives. And that means obeying God in how we relate to our spouse, in how we relate to our parents, in how we deal with peers, in what we do with the internet, in how we love the people around us just because they're made in God's likeness. Knowing myself, I'm worried that too many times we stop racing in order to watch others race. That we step out and we're like, I'm just not going to race anymore, and I'm just going to marvel at Philip racing over in Highland Park. Philip's doing a great job over there. I'm just going to marvel at how Philip is running. I'm going to stop, and I'm just going to watch. Instead of racing, I'm just going to watch our global partners go. And I'm going to pretend that I have no involvement instead of joining them in their race. Instead of saying, we're all racing together. And while I'm running, I'm going to look over and say, wow, that person is racing so hard. Praise God. And keep running. And helping each other peel off that sin that entangles us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, as you're running, look back at these people who have already run and finished. And be inspired by them. Look at how great God is through their lives. The work ahead of us is not easy. There's a reason he says run with endurance. You're going to get sore. You're going to get beat up. It's going to hurt sometimes. But when we are sustained by the gospel instead of our own self-will, that endurance becomes a lot easier. And so we have this instruction of cutting off our sin and running hard. And it's all a lot of hard work. And so how do we do it? Well, verse 2. If all we do is verse 2, I think the the running hard and the cutting loose are going to take care of themselves. And so let's look at verse 2. We do this by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. We do this by keeping our eye on the prize. The whole time we run, we are looking to that glorious finish line, which Scripture calls the day of Christ. We are looking to cross that finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the ultimate It is looking unto Jesus that allows us to deal with sin. It is looking unto Jesus that allows us to run the race that is set before us. The author is being very deliberate here in telling us to look at Jesus. It would be so easy in our human mind to look only at Hebrews 11 and say, Oh, how great is Abraham! Oh, look at Enoch! He was and then he was not. Look at Moses did. Even Gideon's in here. It'd be so easy to read these stories and in our human mind make much of the people and completely miss the God who is doing everything. So he's telling us here in 2, the author's telling us, don't look at the people as the main point. Look at them as part of the fellowship that you're in. 
And then in looking at Jesus, you'll be partnering with them in what they were doing. I mean, look at 11.39. And all these, the people of chapter 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had, not, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What they were doing the whole time is they're, they're trusting God in their immediate circumstances and they're looking ahead to His grand fulfillment, which is Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, we're doing what they were doing. We are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the founder. This is the impact of Jesus' death. That He died, He poured out His blood, and He established a new way of walking with God. He opened up God saying, I'm going to make for Myself a people. I will be with them as their God. They will be with Me as My people. This heart cry of God that goes all the way back to Exodus finds its fulfillment in Revelation 21. The founder, Jesus being the founder, is the impact. Of Jesus' death. Jesus being the perfecter is the impact of Jesus' resurrection. That we do not only die to sin and self when we follow Jesus, but we are also raised to new life. And in that new life, Jesus is perfecting our faith as we follow Him. Peter and James describe the role of of trials and how that works in in perfecting our faith. And Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That Jesus being the perfecter of our faith is what's going on now. It's his involvement in our life now that we are raised to newness of life. And as we look at Jesus, a couple things happen. One, we are filled with grateful worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes away my sins. And we have this grateful worship, and that grateful worship inspires our obedience. That we're not being obedient to do the right thing and just running our head against the wall, but we're being obedient looking at the Lamb who gave His life for us. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before Him. His joy was not in His perfect in His personal comfort, His fame, but the Father's will and glory. This gives us an example of the joy set before us. When our joy is in God's work, our prayer becomes strikingly similar to that of Jesus in Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but yours. When is the joy set before us? It keeps us from praying without doing. We see that Jesus, it wasn't only the joy, so He had joy for the Lord and He despised the shame of the cross. He despised it by turning the shame to His glory. Where everyone else would be ashamed to die on a cross, it was for Jesus' glory. And he despised the shame by making the shame of the cross Satan instead of himself. As Colossians 2 says, that he nailed all of our sins and its legal demands to the cross for the shame of Satan. And Jesus is royal. 
We look to a Savior who's the author and perfecter of our faith, who acted in joy and endurance, who despised the shame of the cross by making it His glory, and is now royal. Jesus has an elevated status. You can't read Hebrews and not see that. He is our mediator to God. He is our great high priest. He is our ultimate sacrifice. In the Gospels, we see that he refers to the disciples as friends. But let us never forget that Jesus is royal. That he is sitting on a throne. And one day he will step off that throne and he will declare the final war. And he will end it quickly with the sword of his mouth. Nothing else is worthy. I have a friend that says he's obsessed with Jesus. Because any other obsession will ruin him. But being obsessed with Jesus gives him life. As we seek to have this obsession with Jesus, as we look to him, it allows us to endure the work of the Great Commission, the ridicule of the world, hard marriages. It allows us to run for obedience. Obedience to a God who loves us enough to create us and redeem us. So what or who are you looking for? What or who are you looking to? When life is difficult, when brokenness sets in, where do you turn? We are best off looking to Jesus. Remember the words of the old song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I hope and pray that for us. That the things of earth that seek to entangle us will grow strangely dim in the light of Christ will shine brightly. Let's pray. Father, life is not easy. It's often hard. And, and sometimes we feel more like we're being broken over and over again than that we are running a race of endurance for your glory. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to, that our gaze would be fixed on him. We praise you for the work that he has done. Pray that you would help us to continually see that and never tire of looking at the cross.